For everybody else, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 20 through 26 this morning. I don't think I introduced myself earlier, so my name is Adam. I think I know everybody here, but if you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here with Living Hope, um, so that's who I am. Okay, so this is, this is nothing to do with the message. There's a lot of engineering types out here, and if you could just explain this to me. So the, the, the water out here keeps getting lower, and I, have a, I don't have an engineering brain. I have a very simple brain. It feels like it keeps raining, and water should be filling it, and yet it keeps getting emptier. So I would really love if someone could explain to me the basics of why there's not water. Does anybody, can anybody tell me in like 10 seconds why, the, why isn't there water in the pond? If you, but why is it, it's, it's drier than normal. Why isn't it? What, with the, it's on purpose. What? I don't, but, what, but it's normally full. That's what I'm saying. Like I don't, I understand thing, water drains. There's a water table or cycle, but who's doing it on purpose? I don't understand. I feel like everybody's looking at me like I'm, I have, like my IQ is four, but I'm just, like, I, I, I just feel like there's, there's more going on. There's more going on. So, I, um, all right. Yeah, yeah. Everybody understands this beyond me, so we're just going to move on. Um, yeah, it's a man-made, like, I think it should be full because of all the rain, but I don't know. Okay. Um, well, again, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 20 through 26. Yeah, don't write down any of this stuff. So um, that Adam doesn't understand the water table or the water cycle is not really part of the sermon. Um, but I don't know if you've ever re- read like, like a leadership book, like one of these kind of just, you know, there's, there's tons of leadership books out there. You know, one of these like 21 principles for management kind of books. And there, there, there's a ton of them out there. There's some, honestly, I've read a number of these that they're not worth the paper they're printed on. You know, they just use buzz, buzzwords and sort of, you know, some some business jargon, or there's a whole series of books that use buzzwords and church jargon. Um, There's some of them, honestly, that have had a profound effect on on many people. There's some that I would really encourage people to read and and, and apply, but but most of them just sort of say the the same sort of thing, and they just sort of repackage a lot of of buzzwords around, and, and they don't really tell you how to do these things, like that would really be helpful, but they just tell you things like you ought to, in your leadership, inspire others, and you need to talk about the, the rewards for being under your leadership, and you know, just they, they, you know, big time on positive messaging and positive messaging. And the, the impression you would come away from, from reading one of these books is not only if you follow these lessons, you're going to be a great leader, if you follow them perfectly, like you're almost going to have too many followers, right? I mean, that, that's how good and instructive these, these books are. And to say, there's, there's a place for some of these books. It's not really what it's about. There's things to be learned. But, but as we read this morning's passage, as we turn to Luke chapter 6, it, it's just obvious that, that Jesus didn't read any of these management-style books. That Jesus isn't interested in sort of, okay, what's the, what's the sort of business leadership jargon that I can use? Because he is healing, and he is teaching, and he is performing miracles, and as he's doing all this, he is beginning to attract quite a crowd. He is beginning to gain quite a number of followers and disciples, and momentum is building in the ministry of Jesus. And every management book out there would tell you, all right, now this is when you get them to sign up. This is when you close the deal. Every politician would say, all right, that's why right now you need to cast your vote for me. Every salesman would say, yep, right now is when you need to sign up your name. But Jesus is unlike any other, and he isn't interested in molding his ministry after a self-proclaimed guru. 
He isn't interested in false promises or easy belief. Jesus Christ is aware that there is no Christianity without the cross. And so he gathers his followers and proclaims what it's like to follow him. What is it like to live in the kingdom of Jesus? And he's going to inform his disciples that it's the road filled with poverty and hunger and weeping and where others will revile you. But it's also the only road that leads to glory and through, to true peace and lasting joy. And so Jesus is telling us this morning what it's like to follow him on the road. And so we not only want to see what is it like to follow him, we want to ask ourselves, am I following Jesus on this road? Is, this, is what Jesus is describing what it's like to be in the kingdom, does that describe me and my life? Because as we're going to see this morning, the stakes could not be any higher. So the main idea we're going to look at this morning is, is that because Jesus is unlike any other, blessed are those who follow him. Because Jesus is unlike any other, blessed are those who follow him. So with that, I'm going to ask if you could stand, if you're able, if you could stand as we read Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are, the, blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did, did, did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, you may be seated. I don't know how this struck you, but this is a, this is a very heavy passage, right? This is one of these hard passages. And this is a, this is a heavy beginning to of a sermon that, that's going to last the rest of chapter 6. So is in some ways, it's, it's the shorter version of what we read about in, in Matt, what we see in the book of Matthew of the Sermon on, on the Mount. Though, though it's different, it's going to hit many of the same themes that we see in Matthew. There's some debate whether this is the exact same sermon, that, that, but the two men, Matthew and Luke, just recorded them a bit different. And we see that, we see that oftentimes throughout the Gospels, that, that Two or three writers will record the same event, but oftentimes emphasize something different in a miracle or teaching. So they'll record the same event, but oftentimes have a, you know, just have a different emphasis. Or if this is a separate sermon than what we read about in Matthew. I happen to believe that this is a separate sermon than what we read in Matthew. There are several text differences that are, that, that, that are just different enough that, that lead me down that road. For example, even in just the passage this morning, there's, there's a different number of Beatitudes. Unlike in Matthew, we see there's both blessing and woe accompanying the Beatitudes. And this one is, is very personal. So he uses the word you just over and over, where Matthew's version is a bit more universal. So I happen to believe that this is a, that this is a, a sermon Jesus preached at different times in different settings, and, and sort of sort of the same sermon, but yet a, a little different each time. Some, similar to how there's pro 
probably aware of pastors that have, you know, they'll preach a sermon at, at their home church, but then maybe they'll be a guest speaker somewhere or have a conference or something like that, and, and they'll preach the same sermon, but yet it, you'd say, well, it's different because of a different audience. So roughly the same, but different emphases at different times. And I think that's what is happening here, that it's a slightly different sermon than what we read about in Matthew. But, but, but why does Jesus preach this? Who is this sermon to? Well, verse 20 informs us, and it's this intentional word choice that, that, that Luke is drawing out, that, that he lifts his eyes on his disciples, that Jesus is speaking particularly to his disciples. He is speaking to those who, who follow him. He is speaking to Christians in the passage this morning. And in speaking to them, he gives them four Beatitudes. Now, Beatitudes are, are sort of pronouncements of extreme blessing. It, it's this spiritual state of great joy. So it's, it's, not, it's not a word we use very often, right, and just kind of sort of, at least I don't, in sort of my common vernacular just day to day, but, but it's, it's, a very, it's a very strong word. It, it indicates that there's, a, that there's a joy that's more than just temporary happiness, but this deep and abiding spiritual joy is really these Beatitudes. And he's and he's giving in the Beatitudes his people, not sort of how does one enter the kingdom of God, but what's life like inside the kingdom of God? And so, so it's the setting of this, well, this is extreme joy for those inside the kingdom of God. And you might think, okay, that adds up to what we've seen about Jesus as he's been the one healing and performing miracles and teaching with authority. Now he's talking about how the kingdom of God is, is marked with great joy and it all seems to add up until you hear them, right? And then when you hear them, it's like, well, they don't sound like blessings. They don't sound joyful. They sound like sacrifice and pain. And so it's clear just from the very beginning as he's, as he's building this following, and it almost, try, it almost seems like he's trying to convince them, that, are you sure you really want to follow me, that he's really unlike any other. And I think one of the questions behind the Beatitudes as he gives them is this. Is, it, is following him really worth it? Is following Jesus Christ really, really worth it because of what life is like for those who do follow him? So we're going to seek to answer that by asking three questions of the Beatitudes this morning, of this text this morning. And, and question number one is this. What's it look like to follow Jesus? What's it look like to follow Jesus? And the way he lays these out is he gives four blessings of being a disciple, but then a corresponding curse, a corresponding woe, in a sense the opposite for those who don't follow Jesus. And the first is this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So blessed are you who are poor. So this is not an indictment against any material wealth, though it is certainly a warning that not to put your trust, is in, your trust in riches, to view your resources and your finances and whatever one would sort of make one wealthy on earth as, as not as your own, but primarily as an opportunity to, yes, certainly meet your needs, but be generous and invest in the kingdom to view your wealth properly as a steward of what God has given you. So I, so I think, definitely think that's there, but I, that's not the main view that I think Jesus is referring to, is this sense of material wealth. 
But I think he's picking up on, on a theme we see back in Isaiah 61, where it said that the coming one was, was bringing good news to the poor. And if you remember earlier in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus opens up and preaches from Luke, uh, of Isaiah 61, and he basically says, and that's me. I am the good news to the poor. I am the bringer of the good news of the poor. And so it's this poor that's not just material in view in Isaiah 61, but it's this poor that we, that we see in view and even earlier in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 2, when Simeon and Anna were commended because they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then they saw Jesus and were convinced it was here. So, so, so the poor that, that Jesus primarily is referring to are not those who are materially poor, but those who are poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are those who are primarily not rich because they're getting all the satisfaction and all you can get out of this world now, but are waiting for the one to come, who are waiting differently than the rest of the world, who are living differently than the rest of the world. So it's not sort of a poor that's, that, that, that's primarily about an economic status, but those who, in a sense, were poor in spirit, who, who were impoverished in the eyes of the world because they were waiting for the Lord. They were those who, who had this low esteem and, and who sort of, they, they weren't just looking to live this way sort of one day. Okay, yep, the, the, the Sabbath is when we're poor in spirit, but, but every day we are poor in spirit. We are, we are waiting for something else. We aren't, we aren't sort of living for the earthly present reality primarily. We are living in wait for, for something and for someone else. The ones Jesus commends for being poor in spirit, and we see this in, in, in Luke 2, we see this, this promise being given in, in Isaiah, is this, it's those who, 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 who were waiting in a way that they never made compromise with the world. In Isaiah specifically, it's those who, who didn't compromise with their pagan conquerors, but waited in purity. They, they were waiting for, 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 for riches that were to come, not for what was right in front of them. And between the time of Isaiah and the time of Christ, Israel was conquered and handed off to the Persians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. And that generation was marked by one after another there were so many who, who slowly compromised to the world around them. They got, they got just tired of, of resisting the world around them. And so they, they, they stopped waiting. They stopped looking ahead, and they were primarily looking now. And it, there was many, many who, 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 who both waited some and compromised some and who waited some, but also slowly but surely began to live for now, who made some peace with the world. And they, they vaguely sort of looked forward to the Messiah, but they also were consumed with what was around them. So that generation was really marked by many who, who weren't the world, but they weren't that distinct from the world. It was sort of this world light. Now, can I say, as I, as I think about myself and and many here, I don't think that the, the temptation for most of us is, you know, is Jesus returning? Probably not. I'm just going to live my best life now and put it all in the here and now and not worry about it. I don't think that's the temptation, maybe probably anybody in this room. But, but where I see my temptation as I look back at my last two decades has been to just to slowly begin to compromise and to, 
begin to slowly put, put, put some hope in status, put some hope in personal comfort. Just begin to slowly sort of not, not be poor in spirit, but look to have little things satisfied now as I'm drawn to, to, to personal comfort, as I begin to be sullied some by entertainment of this world and begin to put some of my hope in things like savings and some of my hope in things like insurance rather than just actively hope and wait on God. To not throw away my values, to not discard this book, but to subtly let this present world subtly shape my values and shape my outlook on life and can be tempted over time to slowly build more around comfort and security than, than risky faith. As I see in my own life, I, I see this tendency not to, not to abandon faith, but, to, but, but bring other stuff in too. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who wait and wait and are uncompromising to the end. And woe to those who want it now. Woe to those who are looking to receive this worldly reward and not an eternal one. So there's only one path that leads to eternal joy, and it's the road uncompromised by the world. And he says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now again, this is not, to state the obvious, is not a call not to, to feed the hungry, right? This is not sort of some ban on soup kitchens and food pantries, right? And, and you, you know this, but quite the opposite. The gospel demands that we care for the vulnerable and those who are physically hungry and those who are vulnerable around us. So, so this, is, this is talking again about a, a spiritual hunger. Don't put your hope just in, in the material, but it, it, it's blessed are those who are spiritually hungry. It's hard to sort of define in, in some ways what, what spiritual hunger is, but, but I heard this story, and I thought, it, I thought it worked well. I heard the story of sort of a guy um, was describing sort of a, a flock of ducks he saw, so there's the, these wild ducks that were flying, you know, and this, this kind of thing. And, and so one day, sort of one of these wild ducks, they were flying, whatever, you know, they migrate. They're doing wild duck things as they move from one area to the next to get somewhere else for winter. And one duck seemed to see the food that was down in the barn, saw some other, you know, domesticated ducks and doing domesticated duck things, eating, you know, out of the barn, and he lands, go to the barn, because it, it looked warm, and it looked like he could get a lot of food there, and eventually, as the other ducks flew away and did wild duck stuff, he stayed there, and what happened to this wild duck is he got comfortable, and he kind of got fat, and he got lazy, because he started doing domesticated duck things instead of wild duck things, and then, you know, six months later, when the other ducks were flying back, that this, that this duck didn't fly back, because he had because he had, he had sort of lost his instinct. He, has, he had lost his identity as a wild duck. He had, sort of, he had gotten so fat on sort of just living off this farm, he sort of lost his ability to go join the wild ducks and do what he was created to do as a wild duck. So he, lo he lost his identity. He lost his instinct. He sort of lost his purpose as a duck. And in some ways, I, th I think this is what this passage is simply saying, is that, listen, stay hungry. Don't become domesticated by this world. Don't fall for the lies of entertainment and satisfied in the here and now of distractions of things like podcasts and TV and sports and music and, and what is trivial. Don't, don't, get, don't get seduced by what, what comforts us now that we just become domesticated and we, and we don't stay hungry. See, we were, we were made to have an appetite that, that's so much bigger than, okay, checking a box of, you know, a couple minutes in the Word, say a quick prayer, and, and I'm working, now I'm full. We were, we were made for something so much grander and so much bigger. And so he, he's saying, woe to those who have no spiritual hunger. 
Woe to those who are satisfied in the here and now, who lost their identity and who lost their instincts to, to press in to the Lord. And he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Again, this is not a, one can never laugh, that there's no moments of levity in life. Right? There's a comedian I enjoy named Nate Bergazzi, and he, I, I just think he's laugh out loud funny. This is not, hey, every time you watch him, Adam, you're really in sin here because you, know, you, you laughed a little bit. That's not that obviously what this is saying. But the, but the point he's making is, is don't view your day today, don't view your life, don't view what you're about today primarily as trivial. But we need to be aware that today primarily is war. And we aren't primarily those who are sitting on, on the sideline. We are those who are in the fight. We are in the fight for our souls and for one another, for this culture, for the people in our culture, for our children, for the brothers and sisters of this room. There is a war going on. There is a fight going on. And when we fight, we don't just scoff it off. All this stuff is just insignificant. Whatever. We'll just scoff at the, the waywardness of the world. We'll just scoff at, at all these things. Today is a day of mourning. And we mourn. We're not scoffing. We mourn as we see and experience the ravaging effects of sin all around us. We mourn as we see that the curse destroys all it touches. That we mourn that pornography destroys the life of many, that abuses in homes and in churches. We, we should mourn and we don't minimize and we don't close our eyes. We mourn at the evil that is all around us. We mourn at the curse and we mourn at sin and all of its effects. We, we mourn that so often in our day, evil is called good. We're those, we aren't those who scoff. We aren't those who are just like, oh, what's the big deal? We're those who mourn because sin destroys what it touches. And it says, blessed are you when people, and he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of, God, uh, Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so do their fathers did to the false prophets. You know, I have this, this fundamental belief that every politician in our country is, is just like really unpopular, you know what I mean? And they say things and it's like, who? Who's voting for these people? But then I realized they're saying things because some people are liking what they're saying. It's like, okay, they're, they're speaking because some base of people enjoys what, what they're hearing right now, right? And that that's why politicians sort of say the things that they say at, at times. And that there's, this, there's some people that like hearing sort of the message. And, and, and it reminds me that there's this, there's this pattern uh, in the Old Testament. There's this pattern in the New Testament. There's this pattern throughout all of human history. People like being popular, People like hearing the praise of man. There was a group of people in the Old Testament who claimed to be prophets of God, yet they clearly spoke just for the praise of man. They, they, they bent their message to, to, to what would conform to the ears of the listener, not rather than speaking, what did God say? The prophets who were hated in the Old Testament were the prophets who called sin, sin, and who called holiness, holiness. And they, they pointed out the need to repent in light of sin and holiness. The apostles who were killed in the New Testament didn't 
they weren't killed because they generally had some nice things that we all agree on uh, to say about Jesus. They, they were killed for calling sin, sin, and calling repentance, repentance, and for, for, for declaring to the world that Christ, not only we have some nice things to say, Christ is the one and only. And popularity and praise and and approval and, and, and really conforming our message so that to, to, to sort of what, what's our message? How, how, do we, how do we just sort of conform our message to what modern ears want to hear? Those are warning signs from God. Now, now to be clear, we, we have to know at some level, like am, am I hated for the way I speak just because I'm kind of a jerk in how I speak, right? There, there's got to be a category where we have that understanding where maybe it's not hated for what I'm saying. It's just because I'm just kind of always picking a fight with somebody and they don't like when I do that, right? We have to have a category where, no, not because you're actually conforming to the message of Jesus Christ. It might just be the way you, you kind of come across a certain way because you seem to be a certain way. So we got to kind of have that category in our lives. It's good to seek to be winsome and warm, See, it's good to be, to be kind and not combative. We also got to understand that kindness and compromise are not the same thing. And we must know the difference, even if the world doesn't know the difference. We need messengers today who will preach to a generation of people around us the message of this book, who conform to the Christ of this book, not to what the world would have us conform to. But as we do that, we will be hated. In many places around the world, your life will be threatened. At the very least, it may even be taken. But it will cost us friends and popularity and promotion. It, it, it will. And that's the path of following Jesus. So that's what it's like to follow Jesus. So so I think the second question to ask is, am I on the road of following Jesus? Am I on the road of following him? So, so that's what it means to follow him. So, so why is he telling us this? Like what, what's the intended effect that he is, he is hoping to gain out of his, his disciples for telling us the, the difficult road that it is? And so I think, again, the first thing we need to remember is verse 20 informs us that he is talking to his disciples, that this is a message that he wants his people to hear this is a message for us as a church. So I'm just going to assume since you're here, you either follow him or you're trying to follow him or you're interested in following him at some level. And I just want to know what Jesus, what normally people put in the fine print, Jesus is putting in the bold print so we don't miss it. He just, he wants his disciples to know what, what it's like. He wants them to know that it's hard. It's really hard to have this sense of spiritual poverty and being hated. Spend your life waiting and weeping for the one to come. It means we view this life not as the end, not as the hope, not as the time of refreshment, but we put all of our hope and all of our investments and all of our dreams and all of our labor not upon what is right in front of us, not to receiving something now, not to comparing to what others have, not to what seems nice in the moment, fruitful in the moment. We put everything, we put all of our investment, all of our hope, sort of all of our labor into this, all of it into this future reality, which means to follow him means it, it, it's, it's putting our trust in God's promises and God's character more than we put any trust into what we can see and touch and taste and feel today. And I'll just say that, that that's hard. 
and that is costly. And so as he's gaining followers, he wants to be upfront with them about what it means to follow him. And not just what it means to follow him then, but what it means to follow him today. Not just what it means to follow him once. Okay, there's a day decision where we do this, but day after day after day, that this is what it's like to follow him. And you can almost hear the background question of, you still sure you want to follow me? Because this is the path I'm on. And this is the path I'm leading you through. So he just wants to be up front. If you're, if you're on the smooth road, you're, you're probably on the wrong trail because that's just it's the way this works. I think there's also an implicit invitation as he's teaching to follow him because though he's speaking to believers, I think just in case anybody else there may have been listening in then or now, he is offering, you don't have to waste your life and your hope on what is temporary but you can actually invest in what is lasting. You can see life on reality's terms, that the world offers some levity, it offers some popularity, but the world offers us no hope. The world offers us no solution. And he's, off, he's inviting us to go to the one place we can find it in himself. And I think there's a, a chance for his followers to then evaluate, do I, do I do this? Is this? Do I believe this? Does this hunger and and does this poorness and this weeping does this does this define my life now is this how i'm living is this what i'm aimed for is this the road that i'm intentionally walking on or am i investing some hope in the future glory that awaits and subtly some hope in my dreams of the present am i both sort of trying to walk two roads of okay there's this future glory that awaits but i'm also trying to walk this road of fulfilling these things in the present do I soften my message to somebody so that I can be liked? Do I live my life like it's warfare, always on guard? Do I believe that God will fulfill all of his promises that he has made to all of his people? Or do I live my life like I'm just diversifying some of my hope just a bit? I think the main thing that this, he is calling us to do is to have this worldview that is shaped by Jesus that eternity and believing in Jesus and his promises cost you everything, but you gain more. So I think an evaluative question was, do we believe that God will truly bring about what he says? Do we believe that God will bring about what he says in places like 1 Peter chapter 5, where he says, after you have suffered a little while, and in context for Peter writing, a little while is all of our Christian life, spent under the effects of sin and Satan and the curse and the world opposed to me. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is a call to, to live and to, to suffer in this time that's a little while to place all of your faith all of our faith, all of our hope, all of our security on the character and promises of Jesus. So I think we need to ask ourselves, is that, is that how I live? Is that where all my hope is pointed to? Is that what my life demonstrates that, yeah, that's, that's the road I'm on and the road I want to keep walking? Third question then is simply this. Given all that, is it really worth it? Or to say it differently, 
Will Jesus come through? Will Jesus actually deliver on all he, he, he needs to deliver on in the end? Will Jesus actually come through in the end? Because I think we just need to be aware that, that I live in this world, we all live in this world, right, where, where politicians promise things, but they seem to always promise more than they can deliver. I'm inundated with advertising that promises me a lot of things, but they so rarely deliver as advertised that, that my kids have a dad that really wants great things for his children, but I'm unable to bring them about, that I have pastor a church that I desire wonderful things for, but I cannot produce them. So I live in a world that that it's hard to not be a little cynical when I hear sweeping promises because, because so often in my world, either people are unable to fulfill them or simply don't desire to fulfill them. And so it's easy to think about promises, how they get lessened over time. But if I'm really going to be all in on the promises of God and on God fulfilling all he says he will do, we need something that doesn't just sound good. We need to know Jesus Christ will actually deliver. Because here's the reality, and if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you know it well. To hunger, and to be poor, and to be hated, and to weep, is painful. It's, it's deeply painful to live in a world that assaults the values of this book. But not only do they assault the values of this book, they mask it as good and compassionate and loving and me as hateful. And, and, and in that context, it's hard not to move just a little. It's painful to lose friends and to not be close to a certain family, to be in some sort of unease relationally because of the way that you've, that you've had to bring truth. It's hard to be passed by at work. It's hard to be unpopular. I mean, it's hard when you're a student day after day after day after day to, unpop to be unpopular for Jesus. It's really hard to keep preaching the gospel to yourself and to keep preaching against lies when, boy, anxiety and worry seem to surround you and Boy, they seem to be more accurate in what they're saying right now where, where it's hard and, and when, when trials are at hand and so close and God can seem so far, it's hard to keep waiting and weeping and waiting and weeping. It's hard when Satan is coming after our kids, when we see sexual confusion clouding the minds of a generation, when we hear evil being called good, and those who love God call it being called evil. It's hard to experience things like suffering and trials and miscarriages and losing friends because the curse and its fallout has laid waste to human hearts and human homes and all have been affected. So it's hard when we see impurity and immorality, not just rampant in culture, but, with, but it dull the life of men and women in this room when, when it destroys homes, when it, when it feeds this growing evil trade of human sex trafficking, it's, it's hard to see the unborn under assault. It's hard to see the immigrant look down upon. It, it, we weep because the church in America is so segregated and because brothers and sisters around the globe right now are being martyred. And it's hard as a Christian to watch at times our neighbors seem to have such an easier and abundant time of things despite the fact that they seem to care nothing about Jesus because it's hard because to the untrained eye, it would often appear that the evil one is waiting and is, the evil one is winning while we are waiting 
and we are mourning, it appears that the evil one is the one victorious in the fight. So I think it's right to ask the question to Jesus who makes this demand on us and who calls us to carry this cross. Will he actually come through? Will the cross for certain lead to the crown? Will I for certain be consoled? Will there be rewards? Will mine really be the kingdom of heaven? God, will you really count and then dry every tear? So this passage makes us aware of, of not only what he is calling us to. As we read this passage, we also need to be deeply aware of who is calling us to it. So we need to not just know the, the, the message that is being proclaimed, but the messenger who is proclaiming it. And this messenger, this Jesus, will indeed come through. He is the one who left the riches of heaven to become poor for us. He is the one who became the man of sorrows, born in a stable, who lived his life with no place to lay his head. He left the throne so that we can share his inheritance. He lived among a sinful generation and never compromised. He never compromised for one moment, for one thought, for one deed, to the pride of the Pharisees or to the actions of sinners. He was one who did not compromise because we are those who did and who do compromise. This is the Jesus who, who hungered in the desert quite literally, but he is also the one who hungered though he was fully man. He was never domesticated by man. He is the one who wept. Who not only wept at all the effects of the fall, but bore on himself all the consequences of the fall, of sin and shame and separation and brokenness and despair, who took the curse, who took our curse, who took all of our curse, all the reasons that we have for waiting and for weeping and for hunger and for hatred, he took upon himself. This Jesus is the one who was hated and reviled. He was the great prophet, priest, and king who never uttered a false word and who was hated for being and bringing the truth. And in doing so, not only did he bear the cross, in doing so, in bearing the cross, he earned for us the crown. Through his resurrection, he conquered sin and death and he broke the curse. And though we suffer now for a little while, Jesus Christ suffered like no other so that the crown of glory he earns, we would receive, so that we can walk on this road that is narrow. But it is the road that because he always fulfills all of his promises, it is the road that will bring us to glory. So because Jesus is unlike any other, blessed are all those who follow him. Let's pray. Father, would you... Make us aware in our hearts and in our lives and, our, and just as we, as we think about just all the temptation that surrounds us, all the, the right weeping and mourning and cause for, for all these things that is around us. That Jesus Christ is the one who is faithful to the end. That Jesus Christ will deliver on all his promises. That Jesus Christ 
will always, every time, come through for all of his people. So would we be those who, who hunger? Would we be those who are, are poor in spirit? Would we be those who weep now? Because we want to follow Jesus on the road to the cross as he then leads us home to glory. So Lord, would you, would you give us an eternal perspective on our lives? Would you give us an eternal hope in Jesus Christ? And would that hope be, be more true to us than, than any of the temptations or any of the trials or any of the circumstances that surround us? Lord, would the hope of Jesus Christ reign in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.